It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. This week, I speak with Professor Jan Rippentrop. Jan is the chair of the homiletics department at the Lutheran School of Theology here in Chicago. I taught a preaching class, helped teach it a couple of years ago, and one of the things I realized while I was trying to do that was that it seemed like there were some people in the classroom who were absolute naturals and others who I wasn't quite sure how to to teach. Jan is a better professor than I was, that's for sure. She has this nice way of understanding how people who are studying preaching bring different experiences into the classroom, but that all of us can be taught how to preach. We also talk in our conversation about whether or not it is appropriate to expect God to show up in worship, and we touch on a lot of other fun things as well. I learned about Jan from a listener. If you would like to recommend somebody who would be an interesting interview for Preachers on Preaching, I say this almost every week and I mean it, please do email me, preachers at christiancentury.org. For now, here's my conversation with the Reverend Jan Rippentrop. Well, Jen, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. I'm really glad that you're here. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you, Matt. You're a professor of preaching at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, as a preacher, what's it like to teach preaching? Well, I consider it quite a gift because I feel that I still get to stay in the practice of preaching. I get to preach regularly myself. However, what is such a gift is to get to work with emerging preachers and get to hear from people the various spots that they're at when they enter my classroom. Students range from having preached often in various settings in multiple denominations. And some of the people in my classroom are already serving as pastors and are preaching every Sunday. Others have never preached a sermon in their lives. And so there's a huge range of where students feel that they are. Yet when students come in, they are ready to change. How much of the, in in homiletics in general, is there a a shared emphasis, a split emphasis on content and delivery? Or where where is the emphasis in the classroom? Are there, I imagine there are many different theories about how the word gets proclaimed. Where is your emphasis in the classroom? Are you working primarily on the theology of what's being expounded or the the manner in which it's being proclaimed? Well, thankfully, we get to have different courses that have different foci. So in this introductory course, our plenary time is quite heavy on theory. And we talk about the practice of preaching and a little bit about its history, but a lot about theology and preaching in that course. And then there are design and delivery courses that focus a lot more on the embodiment of the act. And then I get to co-teach courses with other faculty members at LSTC. And in those courses, then it also depends on the blend with the other professor. For example, right now I'm teaching with a New Testament scholar preaching Luke Acts. And so we're looking at a political theology and hermeneutic that emerges from Luke Acts from a time of deep turmoil within a social social setting, resistance to empire, and also the building up of community. A lot of these 
themes are present in our daily lives here in Chicago, they're also present in the context that our students will be called to serve. So no matter if their context is urban or rural, these ideas about how you respond to oppressive forces, how you respond to change and turmoil in society, and how you um, respond in the building up of community are themes that we can look at in Luke Acts and very, very clearly see in our context in Chicago and imagine for their context wherever they will go and serve. So different courses get to address different parts different of themes. these yeah. kind of homiletical. Do you find yourself more excited by, maybe I'm drawing a false distinction here, but but, but more excited by teaching one of those areas or the other, the performative dimension of it versus the preparatory exegetical side of things? Huh. Well, I don't seem to have a lack of enthusiasm for any of these things. I um, seem to have an abundance of energy. So I think that for me, they are different goods, as McIntyre might call them. However, they're not, it's not that I would prioritize one or the other. I think that different people may build different constellations for themselves, and they probably need to because we all come from diverse settings with a diverse um, set of commitments. And so any one person's homiletic is going to look different from another person's. It's going to be built differently. Like any parenting style is different one to the next do you and find, needs to be. Do you find students who come in who seem like naturals? Mm, this is a good question because as a teacher of homiletics, you almost have to believe that that preaching can be taught. And I do believe that. And yet there are people who have received a lot of accolades for their public presentation of themselves and their words, and therefore have practiced a lot more into it. And so what I see is that the people who feel the most confident about it are people who have been affirmed for their speaking ability in the past and have a confidence about that and actually have been given more opportunities to practice mm. into that public presence. And so, um, so yeah, I think that people do have different gifts. Is, However, Is the trepidation that students feel when they are first learning how to preach, do you mm-hmm. think that's primarily... Mm-hmm stage fright or is it primarily like a balking in the face of the sort of audacity to to get up there and proclaim the word of God? Yes, you see it all. Because for some people, speaking in front of a group is terrifying and in that in itself. And there is a lot of resistance to that as as a thing itself, just speaking in public. However, for others, it is an awesome task that to be able to think that you have something to say to a whole people um, that is the word of God. And I think actually that that demeanor, that humble approach is appropriate to, to the discipline of preaching. And that when people forget that this is an awesome task, that that's a larger problem than, than being awed in the face of it. What, what do you think happens when a person gets up and proclaims the gospel and the word of God, well, maybe I'm giving my own answer here. What What's going on in a sermon? What's the, where's the magic? Where's the supernatural? Where's, how is it distinct from stand-up comedy, from a good storyteller, from Garrison Keillor? What's the, 
What's the line of demarcation? Brilliant. This is the reason that I went to grad school. This question was percolating in the assembly that I served in Iowa City, Iowa, and that assembly was asking questions about how God is present. And some of the people in our assembly were answering that they could not presume upon God. Uh, and and I thought, oh goodness, look at look at the patriarchs. They're presuming upon God what all that, the time. What does that mean, presume upon God? What I mean is they're expecting things of God. They're expecting God to show up. And they're expecting, and, and yet people in the assembly I was serving uh, felt that that might not be right to expect mm. something of God, as though that would be putting too much upon God. Put a limit on God's freedom or... I can't say exactly what was behind that. However, I, I wanted to go and say, well, no, what can we say about how God is active within worship? And so that is why I went to study. And and I have always been at the intersection of liturgics and homiletics, looking at how is God involved in the hearing of the word. And so what I've come across in my studies is that there was a lot of focus on pneumatology in earlier times, and some of that has fallen away within current homiletical theory. And yet, uh, in our systematic theology, across Protestant, I can't speak to Catholic, um, but across Protestant theologies, we believe that the Spirit makes this happen, and that the Spirit takes the Word and translates it to the inner self. And so I think that from a theological perspective, that reliance on the Spirit and knowledge that you are in the accompaniment of the Spirit and reliant upon the Spirit's activity within preaching uh, is deeply resonant with Christian theology. I think that within philosophy, if you look at someone like Paul Ricoeur, that we can talk about and he bases this on Gadamer, about the fusion of horizons that occurs when someone takes the word as their own, opens to it, opens themselves to it. And at the same time, um, the philosophy uh, is that the word itself opens and casts a world before the word. So you're not just in preaching trying to retrieve an ancient world from the first century and present that ancient world. You actually, a, a text will open itself and project a world in which um, as Recur says, we can project our own most desires. Uh, what that means for a Christian is that the word is open to us, and when we're open to the word, there's a dynamic interaction that occurs at that site, and that is then what Gadamer would call the fusion of horizons. But it's a great place of creative interaction, and theologically then, I think that that is a site of encounter of the divine. Is there work that a Christian has to do in order to open herself to the word? Well, I think that it's, it, I would not say that. Uh, I would say that, that it's grace. Whenever there's encounter with God, it is God who initiates that encounter. It's a good Lutheran answer. <laughs> Speaking of, do you, in, in your own teaching, most of your students are Lutheran, um, my stereotype of Lutheran preaching is that it's pretty, I mean, this is a positive stereotype, that it's rooted in Luther's law gospel 
approach. Is that, is that, am I carrying around this sort of old, I haven't heard a lot of Lutheran preaching. So am I carrying around an old stereotype is, is, would you say that like Lutheran preaching today in the ELCA is, um, is it sort of like, like most mainline liberal Protestant preaching or does it have, does it, has it retained that unique Lutheran orientation? Let me tell you some thoughts on this. I think that many Lutherans do think about it being characteristically Lutheran to have law and gospel preaching. However, what does that mean exactly? I heard Otis Moss speak just yesterday, and he was talking about how we need in prophetic preaching to talk about tragedy, and we need to end with what he called the amen note. He named this blue note preaching. Lutherans call this law and gospel. So that model carries, right? And takes different shapes and different I, forms. I think that many of our theologies have come to this point that the word is not uh, glory only, and it is not devoid of, of expressing and counteracting that which crushes us as humans. And it names God's liberating word for us. I think that many of our homiletics across Protestant denominations include moves like this. Lutherans name this law and gospel and do focus on making sure that we teach it. However, I see it taught in many denominations, but with different language. And we believe that since it is a living word, that it has the capacity to create. And so then students, when they when they preach, I really talk about not not talking about a text, but actually welcoming a journey. Now, this calls upon Fred Craddock a little bit, but that that the students who have been studying this word then have presumably um, had some kind of encounter, something dynamic has happened in their exchange with that study. And then I invite them to to do that within their sermon so that they aren't only telling people about what they discovered, they're actually taking their assembly on a process of discovery. And then it's for the assembly to take forward. Fred Craddock says that the best ending to a sermon leaves it open, not ambiguous, but open, so that it's not closed down to a narrow and fine point, but that it's open for the hearer to take into their own lives. And then that's where that recurring um, encounter between the word and the hearer can occur. Do you think that that open-endedness of sermon endings, in some ways it cuts against how we're taught to write? Mm. You know, even even from um, yes, it does. middle school, when you're first learning how to write an essay, you better have a conclusion, and that conclusion better sew things up quite tightly. Oh, yes. Um, do you see in your students a need to sort of unlearn uh, a certain method of composition in order to be open, in order to have open endings? Yes. Sure. Our students have been in academics for for 20 years or more straight um, in many cases. And they have learned very well how to write a thesis statement, how to argue their points, and how to close it off. And I start many of my lectures in the first week of classes um, telling students that they're going to submit no term papers in this course. In fact, the process is quite the opposite, that we are not going to submit a proposal and then defend it, but we are going to take people on a journey of discovery. And so I talk with them about how it's much less like 
the composition of a term paper and much more like the composition of music or of a dance. And so that they pay more attention to the the assembly, who the hearers are, and privilege those hearers. And so that they think about the form of this and how it connects emotionally, and that they think about what this piece does instead of only what it says. What it says. Do you think that sometimes I wonder if there's a, this is for myself, uh, almost a disingenuousness in that approach occasionally. I've tried to discipline myself in my own growth as a preacher to not be prescriptive in the in in the conclusions I'm drawing. But occasionally I'll feel like, well, I know where this ought to go. I know what I want to be telling the congregation about how they ought to think about this issue, about what they ought to do with this text. Yet I know, or I've learned as a preacher, people tend to shut off when you get when I get prescriptive like that, so I'll some I don't know. Sometimes I feel like there's a strange line between sort of leaving that open endedness, and I love that analogy that you've drawn to music. I mean, music doesn't have a thesis, right? It's a rare piece of music that ends with a sense of like this is now summarized for you, and you know how to feel. Um, but I, but sometimes I feel like that's there, but I'm going to hold back. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, like rather than. I don't know if it's just an ambiguity, rather than feeling in the preparation of a sermon as if I am intentionally leaving something open for the spirit to move or for people's receptivity to, to act. Instead, what I'm doing is just pulling my punches. Does that, do you know what I mean? Does that seem like a real, a real thing? I think that I hear you. And one thing that I uh, want to respond to within that is the fact that as preacher, you are called to exegete your assembly and exegete the text and compose the sermon at the intersection. And so so if you have a nudge that this is the kind of thing that needs to be spoken into your assembly, I'm not saying to avoid that, but what I'm saying is to do it instead of say it. So for example, maybe it's easier for me to draw an analogy to parenting, the idea that I don't only tell my children, we're going to um, we're going to eat vegetables, but I model it for them and I get them raising vegetables in the garden and that they are very excited to eat. And so in a way, it is that difference between telling my child to do something and and showing the doing of it. And so in a sermon, I don't mean that you don't need to get there. You do need to get there, but you need to do it as an as an encounter, as an experience, as an action, instead of as a telling. Rather than in a sort of didactic, finger-shaking manner. I mean, I think for me, the worst sermon I ever preached was years ago when the Mel Gibson um, crucifixion movie came out. And I remember before, you know, I hadn't seen it, but I'd heard about it and read about it. And I preached a sermon about, I don't I forget, I think it was during Lent, right? That's when that movie came out, was during Lent. And I preached a sermon about you know, just what a piece of trash it was and how you shouldn't go see it. Like, why be complicit with this guy's anti-Semitism and distortion of history and distortion of the gospel? Um, And if you're a good Christian, you're going to, you won't darken the doorstep of of a movie theater to give him your money. And (laughs) I I agree with every single thing there, but it's like, that wasn't really a sermon, you know? And, And I think that the congregation that I was with at that point 
very few of them would have gone to see that movie anyhow, but but they hated that sermon. You know, they hated being told what yes. to do in that sort of narrow way. Yeah. Yes, and usually for transformation's sake, it is very rarely the times that we're told, do this, yeah. that there's the greatest transformation. Mm-hmm. It is almost always a process of self-discovery. And so I think that actually the preacher has a greater chance of effecting self-discovery and transformation if we don't finger wag and find other ways to accompany the discussion to broaden things. I think that's hard to be prophetic in a sense of opening people to the action of God versus being prophetic in a manner of sort of being moralistic, of being lecturing, you know, it's, that's hard to learn how to, Mm -hmm. to walk that line. Um, do you have rules for your students around use of self in the pulpit of personal anecdote and story? Do you, how do you guide your students in that regard? Mm-hmm. Good. Well, we talk about self-disclosure in our intro course, and I think that it is a really important question. It's a question that the students themselves all, almost always have. And so within lab, we point out examples where it went well and some examples perhaps where it didn't go as well. And what we notice is not that it's usually that you can make a set of guidelines to follow that will always keep you in the right zone, rather that it is often degree and not content, and that it's dependent on context. What I mean by that is that you can tell one story in one assembly that would go too far for another assembly, and you have to know what that is. And also, the degree that you uh, of how you tell your story matters to how it will impact the hearers. For example, you can tell a really powerful and difficult story, and, and you can do that in a way that does not go too far. However, if you want to make it Um, very graphic and intense, then you can tip those scales into a way that then uses the hearer's energy in a way that distracts them from the overall sermon or may even be harmful to people. So it's not only content and context, but also tone. And and, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, I find with younger preachers that there is, or newer preachers, that there is that's a hard question, right? Because people don't want to hide themselves. They're they're preaching at some level out of a very personal set of reasons and have personal experience that resonates, it can resonate with the congregation. And people tend to get a lot of positive feedback when they are self-disclosive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it can very easily obscure the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a fine line. It um, is, and I think that... One thing that helps in our conversations with our students is to talk about how we are always disclosing ourselves. There are ways that I walk into a room and I automatically disclose that I'm married and I disclose that I'm female, and we are always disclosing. And so it's not that self-disclosure is a problem at all within preaching, but that it it is degree. Um, and and what makes others feel vulnerable, what makes others feel unsafe, and attending with care and love to your assembly. When when you are you preaching regularly? Are you preaching regularly at the school? I assume. Are you preaching in a Sunday morning context these days? Every once in a while, I'll preach at my congregation when our pastor's on vacation or something like that. But 
Right now, I um, I mostly preach within the seminary context. Are you able when you're in church on a Sunday morning or when you're visiting other churches to take off the critical lens that you have to have on when you're evaluating your students? I would say yes, and though I think the more full answer, I was just discussing with my best friend on the phone, she said that, uh, she's a physical therapist, she said that she uh, can't see people limping without um, kind of thinking, oh, I think if they did this exercise, it might help. And it's because of how she's trained, but it doesn't make her enjoy walking around uh, downtown less. It's how she sees the world. And so I would say, it's not like I try to shut off um, how I listen to sermons. I listen to sermons in a way that is the deepest for me. And that means engagement. And engagement for me means noticing things. And I don't try to shut that off. However, when I'm in worship, I'm in worship. And I'm worshiping God. I am not um, attempting to analyze. However, I still listen to sermons as deeply as I can. That's a great response. The um, how about liturgically? Like, I, I'm a little ignorant about this whole area, actually. So, what is what is a liturgical theologian? What does that mean? Well, again, this is a broad discourse, and so you would find people describe it in various ways. Uh, Alexander Schmemann and Aidan Kavanaugh are two liturgical theologians who did a lot to define the field. One thing that Aidan Kavanaugh talks a lot about is a distinction that he makes between what he calls secondary theology, that is thinking about God and discourse about God, and primary theology, which he designates as um, theology of God or encounter of God. And what he wants to say is that all of our secondary theology actually derives from some kind of encounter with the divine. And he wants to argue that that encounter of the divine occurs within liturgies, that actually God has promised to meet us here. God has promised to meet us in the breaking of the bread. God has promised to meet us in the word. And so there are some of these ways in which God has promised to meet us and that we depend on that life-giving force. And so, so he really approaches then theology in ways that he talks about being proletariat instead of elitist, that everyone has the same amount of access to theology because everyone, you don't have to be a scholar to have this encounter. And that is what primary theology is. So everyone has the same access. He also says that it's communal and not individual, that we um, have access communally, and he focuses on sites like worship or where there is communal engagement of God's action. And then um, he also says that that it is quotidian uh, in that it is daily. It's the daily stuff, the normal stuff. It is not just about the extraordinary. And so this, in this way, he really privileges the people of the assembly over any scholar who would be writing in an isolated study. And, and so liturgical the- theology comes from these perspectives and, and looks for what we can know about theory based on practice. 
So are there liturgical practices that you see or teach that are that grant that access, that facilitate it, that open space up for everyone there to participate? I'm fond of quoting Don Saliers on this. He says about liturgies that while one cannot um, necessarily point here or there and say that that was encounter with God, what we do do or what we can um, plan toward is creating the sites in which these things most predictably occur. And so I think about that like, uh, I mean, there's research, let me take a, a jaunt here. There's research that says that one studies the best when one studies in a predictable location. Because when you show up at the library, your body and mind are all geared up to study there. Well, the same occurs, the same type of thing occurs for people who have ritual postures for for prayer, for example, or who use the rosary or um, who who tend to sing songs in this way. And and so these practices of our faith actually habituate us to have the postures toward God that that we have then come to know as sites of encounter. And so I think that a preacher needs to, again, exegete their assembly, know how those things predictably occur for their people, and then plan toward that possibility. Mm. I think it definitely helps make the Sunday morning experience less than, um, I mean, not. it definitely helps make the Sunday morning experience more than a sort of passive uh, appreciation for a spectacle. Um, from my perspective, like leading worship, the place that I am most consistently disappointed is, is when celebrating weddings, because I find it very hard and I've tried to institute different things over the years, but it's very hard to turn a wedding of non-churchgoers into something that is not theater. Do you know? I mean, if people are bound and determined to sit in a passive way and watch, it's hard to involve them. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it is difficult when a wedding is housed within a worship service, as most are that are enacted in um, a Christian sanctuary, and, and yet to not have participation from the assembly, which wholly goes against that communal bit that I was talking about from Kavanaugh, the whole assembly is participant in worship. And so if you enact worship in such a way that people don't get to participate one has to w wonder how liturgical is this how exactly. how much is this actually public worship but it's but i would say that the, the distinction is it's not so much enacting it in a way that doesn't allow people to participate it is something that looks like a worship service with and for people who don't want to worship um Yikes, huh? That, <laughs> right. That's a strong critique, and I think that's something that we need to think a lot more about. Well, I think as the church, as as the culture gets more and more secular and church going, um, right? I mean, I, I sometimes think I've thought about this a lot that, like, what to do in a wedding liturgically is to use the moment to teach people how to worship, which isn't really why you're there, right? Because I, at least, I, what I want to do is prioritize the couple's desires and needs somehow. Hmm, hmm. Do you teach your students how to do weddings? Is that a part of what you're... 
Well, in the past I have. We don't have a course right now this year that is teaching this. We're talking about perhaps doing a joint course that would look at some of the liturgical elements and the preaching elements that go into things like weddings, funerals, looking at those daily life routines also that are both liturgical and proclamatory. I think you should for what it's worth. I mean, as a practitioner, um, I never got an, an education in those things and I've learned as I've gone, but also even as I'm obviously sharing right now, I feel like I would benefit from some insight into the right ways to handle these things. Mm -hmm. Yes. We have a class on dying and bereavement, and the professor has invited me to come in and teach one session in that class on preaching and funerals. Mm. And so I'm grateful for the collegiality that we have. Yeah. It's interesting. Over the years, I I now have, this is uh, ridiculous that I've needed to do this, but I have a list of guidelines for eulogists that I sit down with Uh because I've heard um, such outrageous, and again, it kind of comes back to this notion of, 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 um, and I'm not trying to like point the finger at people who don't go to church, but I think that um, when then they are thrust into uh, a church setting, they don't know the mores, they don't know the the moves and we can tend to assume that they do because everybody goes to church and knows what church is. And I've, and I've over the years, I've heard, you know, off color stories, crazy narcissistic rambling about, you know, about me rather than about the person I'm supposedly eulogizing, just really horrible. I mean, unsettling moments. So I sit down with people now, okay, who's going to be the eulogist? Um, and okay, don't talk about yourself. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Save your off-color stories for the, you know, don't tell something that you probably wouldn't feel comfortable sharing with your grandmother. And if you have something that doesn't fit those categories, save it for the party afterward. You know, like these kind of basic things. It's funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I think you need to do that. I think also we talk with our students about a homily a homily within a funeral is not a eulogy and make those distinctions for our students. It doesn't mean that your homily doesn't give honor um, also to this person in their life. However, a funeral sermon is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and so as much as possible as a liturgical theologian, I, I welcome the family creating spaces around the liturgy, not within the liturgy for the eulogies. I think it's a better place for people to listen and engage. And what I've encountered in times where there's a time ahead or a time after the service to offer eulogies is that the eulogies then inspire other people's storytelling. And I think that is also a healing part that deals with bereavement then and community. It turns the community toward each other and it helps people to share the stories of that person who they've loved and are now grieving their absence. Um, and so I've seen that, I think pastorally that was more effective. Absolutely, I think that's really smart. And. And, and contrary to what I was just saying about weddings, one of the things I found is you can then at a funeral have a, a, a collection of people, again, who may not be regular churchgoers, but in funeral settings, the just the rawness and the pain, um, people are much more, I've found, open right to the spirit in those contexts than they are at a wedding. So it can be all of those same limitations, all of the same set of uh, sort of uh, demographically things that might be limiting to a powerful worship experience at funerals. They're over. Those things are pushed to the side somehow overcome 
where at weddings they're they're a little more closed off. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I think that the the bearing of pain is a force, I would say that it's an eschatological force that we get to respond to in that what I mean by that is if if eschatology is God's coming toward us, then the ways that God comes toward us impact the ways that we respond to others. And what we know of God is that God is present to us in the depths of suffering. And so then being in line with that coming of God means that we also are open to others in the depths of suffering. And so I think that what you refer to as raw, I think that's just right. This is an occasion where where God's coming and the force of that coming is so apparent that our openness to one another suffering actually gels the community in a different way than a wedding can. Yeah, and 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 I think it speaks to where God goes too, or at least how we hold God off. I think we can regard joy, even if we're witnessing somebody else's joy and aren't feeling it ourselves, as this thing that we're holding. And, and even as we hold it, I think it can function as a shield. It takes, I think, a deep spiritual maturity to be able to name and find and be open to God in the midst of a remarkably positive experience. I think we tend to regard those as our own, where in our pain, or even witnessing somebody else's pain, the the need for God to come into that, right? Not that God isn't present in the joy, but we have a harder time seeing God's movement in those moments, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, well said. You said at the beginning that that the, the congregation you were in, it motivated you to go to grad school, that the question, like, can we presume that God will show up? And a little bit later in our conversation, you said, God promises to show up. Um, so you've answered the question for yourself, do you think? Well, I do think that the trajectory of God's promises, that that what Jürgen Moltmann says about promises is that they, they characteristically open to the future and never close, uh, in that he says that the fulfilling of a promise occurs over time, and that the fulfilling of a promise never fully closes it, but actually opens people up to new expectation. And then he connects then the promises in Hebrew scripture with the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ in the New Testament, and then with what he talks about as eschatology and the coming of God. And so I see this movement from promises through the cross to God's coming as ways that we can talk about how promises that God opens and then delivers on across time actually do embody one of the ways that Christ is present to us or that God is present to us and makes things occur within our midst. And so, yes, that is what I've come to really rely on and talk about as how do we expect that God is doing something here? How do we think about what God is up to? And thinking about it in terms of of God's coming to us and God's promises. It's a wonderful thought. The um, and it's incredible when it happens, isn't it? It's incredible when you notice it. Yeah, yeah. Even though, I, I like that way of thinking about it because there are also those moments where, what am I trying to say? When we're given a promise by another person, we don't get immediate gratification, right? And the, the like, like the, the the delivery on the promise isn't necessarily something that's happening every day. Just in the same way that. God's presence in worship, in my experience, doesn't happen every Sunday. 
um, at least for me, I mean, for somebody else, but those Sundays where you can just feel the spirit moving through a congregation, you know, if those happen, in my experience, if those happen once a month, we're doing, you know, we're really blessed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In my theology, it would be something like God's presence is equally uh, abundant and open to us at at all times in each Sunday's worship. However, there are times that we are not perceptive of it and and less open or more open to it. But do you One, think that there are times though that God can withhold Himself? You know, like God can if God chooses yeah. to. Uh, however. What I experience of God more often and in my reading of scripture is that God has super abundance and that God uh, chooses to live with great openness to this world and, and creation. I think that God's life and God's directionality toward God's creation actually is requisite for life. Mm. That's very Calvinist. You know, that I think, right, that notion that like the world is saturated with the presence of God, that all we need to do is, you know, properly open our eyes and we'll see it. Um, I, I wonder about that sometimes, though. I mean, I struggle with that because it does seem to me sometimes that it puts too much of a focus on our ability to see. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Like there's a, I mean, God forbid that I should... <laughs> challenge a Lutheran theologian on a works righteousness question. But it does feel sometimes to me like if 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 God has thoroughly saturated the world with, you know, at least God's handiwork, right? If not God's presence, at least the something that, that is going to carry the reflection or the image of God, then it's incumbent upon us to, to look in the right way, to be receptive in the right way. But sometimes I see pastorally people who are looking in the right way, who have honed their receptivity and still very much are stung by what they perceive as the absence of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that what I would say in addition, I don't disagree with anything that you've said there, is, is that... Um, I would not want to suggest that a person needs to look in thus and such a way, but I would suggest that there are times that our captivity prevents us from being able to look in such a way. And so it's not our ability or inability or our works or something like that, but that, that there are times that God manifests in ways that we can't miss. Um, so so anyway, yeah, I would want to rely on it being God's activity to disclose God's self to us. Um, however, and not our ability to to see to see or not to see. Um, however, I I do think that there is this dynamic exchange, um, what Kavanaugh called the transaction, um, where where there is there is something of relationship. And I think that God is always breaking into the world and then drawing creation into relationship with the divine. Then, um, that is then the, the kind of consummation of eschatology. Um, and I think that, that this is God's action in the world. And yet we are privileged participants within that. Mm -hmm. So in worship, are we then acting out something that is 
obviously available outside of worship. I mean, is the ritual enactment of that moment, is it a crystallization of something or is it more just sort of an acknowledgement? Like, yes, I can have this same encounter of God. It doesn't have to happen inside church on a Sunday morning, but I'm being sort of more intentional about the fact that it is happening and is available broadly. Do you know what I'm trying to, am I being clear I think it's a great question. I think it goes back to incarnational theology because in incarnational theology, there's an insistence that materiality is changed by the incarnation, that that now God can use whatever materiality God chooses to manifest God's presence to us. So does that mean that on a walk in the mountains, God can manifest God's presence? Absolutely, because we believe that God has the capacity to use whatever materiality to manifest. And and yet, I think that within worship, our belief is that God has promised to manifest to us in this place. And so that's the difference. I love that. Bart has this point where he says this kind of famous passage where he says, you know, God can speak through Russian communism, a string quartet or a dead dog. Um and if he does, we'd better listen. But what he's told us is that he speaks to us through scripture. Yeah. Which, yeah. Amen. <laughs> Jan, thank you so much for this conversation. It's just great. I feel uh, fired up to go craft a liturgy. <laughs> thank you, Matt. It's been great talking with you. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.